from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform and I'm speaking today to Ian Bond, who's the CER's Director for Foreign Policy. Good morning. So we are at a bit over half a year into the Trump presidency and what we want to talk about today is how should, how can Europe and the EU deal with a world in which Donald Trump is president. And in this podcast, Ian is here to discuss two aspects of this question. The first one related to values and the second related to security interests, particularly in Asia. So let us start with values. You argue, Ian, in your writing that the Trump presidency erodes and undermines the international liberal order, which the EU relies on. And inevitably, we have to ask ourselves, what is the international liberal order? And broadly, what kind of order do Trump and his advisors have in mind? Both have made their worldviews quite explicit. On the one hand, the EU global strategy states that we have an interest in promoting agreed rules to provide global public goods. The EU will promote a rules-based global order with multilateralism as its key principle. And then on the other hand, Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, and the director of his National Economic Council, Gary Cohn, say that the world is not a global community, but an arena where nations, non-governmental actors and businesses engage and compete for advantage. Rather than deny this elemental nature of international affairs, we embrace it. And they say that America was open to working with its friends and partners where our interests align. So these differences are striking. How should the EU deal with the fact that they can no longer rely always on the United States to act on the same values as they do? Well, the starting point has to be that the EU acts on its own values. And at the moment, that in itself is in question in some countries of the Union. So it does seem to me to be particularly important that the EU reinforces this message that it is a values-based organization at home as well as abroad. And so that means looking at countries like Poland and Hungary, where there have been some quite serious questions asked about the rule of law and showing that the EU has effective instruments for dealing with those issues at home. And then secondly, it has to look out beyond its borders and look at the international order and the relations that it has with its partners and the implication of no longer being able to assume that on the big issues of principle, Europe and the US will be on the same side. So I want to unpack the international order beyond the EU's borders a little bit. One important aspect of that, of course, is trade. And Trump's attitude to international trade and free trade agreements is a problem for Europe. The EU is the US's largest trade partner. It runs a significant surplus in goods and services trade. And Trump's protectionist stance, which he has run on, which she has demonstrated since he's become president, really is a major economic threat. How does that link back to values? And what can the EU do? Well, partly it links back to the values of belief in the, in the free market. Trump believes in reciprocity. He believes that if Europe is selling more to the US than the US is selling to Europe, then that means that Europe is cheating America and that America is losing and that those things must be brought back into balance. So that's a very different concept from the traditional American and, for that matter, European view since the Second World War, that opening up markets, increasing free trade, is good for everybody. And I would say, looking at the tremendous reduction in global poverty over the last 
uh, 40 or 50 years that the pro-trade, pro-free market view has generally been borne out. What can the EU do then? How can the EU deal with that? Well, the EU has to be very explicit about its support for the continued global order, trading order. It has to continue to defend the World Trade Organization and so on. Uh, an organization that Trump has periodically threatened he might leave or whose rulings he might ignore, which would be certainly very bad for the, for the system. It has to work with countries that are like-minded in terms of their values, like Canada, Australia and others. It's the big democratic countries, Japan, to defend that uh, open trading order. But also with countries like China that don't share its values, but have an enormous stake in the success of world trade. China has probably benefited in terms of the reduction of poverty more than any other country from the relatively free flow of goods and capital in, in recent years. The differences in values between the EU and the Trump administration also affects very concretely the European country's own security. Trump has questioned the solidarity that is at the basis of the NATO alliance and he has been very reluctant to confront Russia's threatening posture. How can Europe deal with the fact that on the one hand they rely on the United States for their security but disagree with the administration's position on values? Well, one thing I would say is that there is a, a significant difference between uh, the values and the approach to security that Trump himself seems to espouse and the approach that's taken by most of the members of his cabinet. In some ways, that's reassuring for Europeans. When you have Vice President Pence, for example, visiting the Baltic states and sounding very encouraging about America's commitment to their security, or Defense Secretary Mattis, likewise, in traveling around in, in Europe, sounding very firm on the importance of uh, defending the West against Russian aggression in Ukraine and elsewhere. So that's very encouraging. The problem is that Trump himself doesn't make the same noises. He seems extraordinarily reluctant to criticize Russia. He was asked whether he regarded Russia as a, a threatening country, and he said, well, there are a lot of threatening countries. And I think the implication of that for Europeans is that you can't be absolutely certain of how he might react in a crisis. It's, it's one thing in peacetime to be able to rely on the Pentagon to do what it is doing and to step up uh, America's force presence in Europe and uh, to conduct more exercises and to pre-position more material and so on. That's very good. But the question is, what happens if there is a real crisis and you have a man in the White House who has in the past said, well, you know, we'd have to take a look at whether European allies were paying enough before we decided whether we would defend them. So this security discussion and really what I take from your answer, the question whether this is not just a threat but also an opportunity for the Europeans to become more engaged leads us on to the second part of this podcast. It is not just Trump's position on Russia and NATO that the EU should worry about. You have argued that Europe can also no longer leave Asia's security problems for the US to sort out. There is North Korea on the one hand and what has seemed over the last months like a very erratic and incoherent approach by the Trump administration administration to the threat of nuclear armament. And then there's China's increasing military power and assertiveness in the South China Sea on the other side. You have criticized the Europeans for not being very present in these conflicts. Why were they not? Well, I think the first thing to say is that 
the Europeans are only really starting to get to grips with the extent to which they need to defend their own interests in Europe. So perhaps it's not surprising that they're struggling to get their minds around the importance in security terms of Asia. But it seems to me that there are, there are two issues that explain why Europe has been so absent from conflicts in Asia. The first of those is, in a sense, is psychological. Most of us, when we think of the world, think of it as a rectangle. Uh, Mr. Mercator, who was a Flemish cartographer, has a lot to answer for. He produced a map that was very useful for sailors, but at the cost of making the world look a very different shape. Those who were brought up looking at that rectangle will be quite surprised to find that places like Brussels are closer to Pyongyang than places like Honolulu. So uh, there's a psychological issue there that, that most people don't think of the world as a globe where the shortest distance between Asia and Europe actually goes over the pole. The second aspect is that for many Europeans, Asia is seen as a business opportunity. It's not seen as a place where security is the number one concern. And so there's, a, there's been a tendency reinforced by America's power in Asia and in the Pacific to think, well, you know, if there are conflicts in the region, the Americans will take care of it. And our job is to go and cultivate businesses there, to attract foreign investment from there and so on. And you can't really separate the trade and investment picture from the security picture. Japan and Korea are the EU's seventh and eighth largest trading partners. China is its second largest trading partner. And if there is a major regional conflict, that is hugely significant for Europe's economy, indeed for the global economy. You can't just pretend that these things have no connection. So that's why I think Europeans have to start taking that much more seriously. And then reinforcing that is the erratic policy making that you see from Donald Trump when he is looking at the picture in Asia. So Ian has just outlined the principles of mercatorism and mercantilism, which he does in more detail in a recent piece of his, which is on the CER website, which I suggest you check out. But for this podcast, I would like for us to talk specifically about the UK's role in this. Much of the Brexit discussion on foreign policy has revolved around the argument that the UK could embrace the role of a global Britain after it had left the EU and really take more responsibility for global security, not just European security. So what about Asia? Can the UK step up to that task? Can the UK save Europe's honor in Asia? The UK can certainly do something for Europe's honour in Asia, but it can't save Europe's honour on its own. And this is one of the paradoxes. There is a very strong argument for the UK and other major European powers to do more in Asia. But if each of them proceeds individually, they're not going to get very far. And just take the, the obvious, uh, one of the obvious examples, which is dealing with tension in the South China Sea and asserting the continued importance of international law on freedom of navigation and so on. The UK does not have a fleet large enough to be able to maintain a permanent presence in that area. But collectively, the UK, France and the other major nations probably do. And indeed, the French defense minister suggested a, a few years ago that European nations should collaborate to have a kind of rotating 
presence in the Pacific and in the South China Sea. So I think even after Brexit, the UK is going to have to work with other European powers of similar sizes. If they all go their own way, then actually all will be the losers. In the first part of your answer, you've painted a quite optimistic picture of what Europe can do militarily in Asia if they all work together. But even if they do, they cannot replace the United States surely on a purely military basis in that region. What about the fact that these capabilities are just not there? What are other levers of influence that the EU can use in the region? Well, it's quite right that even if the uh, European powers step up their defense spending, as many of them are planning to do, a lot of that will be devoted to defense closer to home. But, you know, there are some who, who have a more global reach, and I hope that they will see Asia as one of the one of the places where they should be using that. But certainly there are additional assets. Economically, the EU is, as I've said, is an enormously important partner for a number of the countries in the region. And it would be good to see that used more systematically. It's good that we have annual summits with China, that we have some foreign policy dialogue with China, which is, our, as I said, our second largest trading partner. Let's see more of that. Let's see that stepped up. The US has, or at least has had, I don't know whether the Trump administration will carry on with this, but a, a very uh, comprehensive strategic and economic dialogue with China. A number of European powers have got their own individual dialogues with China, but they're all on a rather small scale by comparison. So let's see a more wide-ranging European approach to talking about political and security issues in, in Asia with the Chinese. Let's see more support from the EU for multilateral organizations that have a role in the region. The Europeans, unlike the US, have signed up to China's Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. They need to use their leverage there to make sure that the money is being well spent, that it's being transparently spent, that it's supporting sensible objectives in the, in the region. It's an, a region which certainly needs a lot more infrastructure spending to tie it together to increase intra-regional trade. So let's see the Europeans doing more on that. And let's see a greater willingness on the part of the External Action Service to see whether it can find a role in some of the regional conflicts. I mean, it's very striking that you have the uh, six-party talks on North Korea, which don't include any of the European powers. They're, they're Asian powers plus the US and Russia. And yet there are a number of European embassies in Pyongyang who are well-placed to be able to give some on-the-ground appreciation of what's happening in the country and in a very modest way to be able to cultivate some dialogue. And yet you very rarely hear any suggestion that uh, the Europeans should get involved in that way. And it seems to me that, that we can't just assume that the Trump administration will do the, these things for us giving every indication that it won't do the sorts of things that Europeans will feel comfortable with and that if Europe wants to look after its own interests in the region it'll have to get more directly involved. That brings us back very nicely to the beginning of this how the EU can defend its values and interests in a world where Donald Trump is president. Thank you very much Ian. My pleasure. If you enjoy listening to the CER podcast, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And while you're there, please leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find us. 
And you can also let us know what you think on Twitter at CER underscore EU.